conversation, not to say that TED Talks have the answer to everything, but to say, here's what one of the premier kind of experts on having a good conversation in our world says. This video's had 26 million views. You think people wish they knew how to have better conversations? We all know that we're bad at it. Her video begins uh, by pointing out that a recent Pew study, and she did this video about five years ago, but at that time, a recent Pew study uh, of 10,000 Americans asked them, uh, how are we getting along as a nation? And one of the things it found, and this has only gotten worse since then, is that Americans today believe that we are the most polarized we've ever been. The most polarized we've ever been, not just on topics of politics, but across the spectrum. We don't get along about much of anything anymore. Uh, we've got all kinds of things that we, t we find ways to argue about. Uh, and yet, we are in a culture that lacks interpersonal skills. Recent studies have shown that teenagers send over 100 texts a day. Um, and I don't mean to pick on teenagers. What I'm telling you is the future of America is going to be digital. They're the future. I'm not saying teenagers are the worst. What I'm saying is here's what's coming. It is a future where our country uh, is continually having people that are more and more inclined to communicate via text. In fact, most teenagers today have been found to be more likely to text a friend than talk to them. Our communication and interpersonal skills are different than they used to be. Now, does that have potential and opportunity for us to connect to people in other places and around the world? Yes. Does it present challenges in terms of learning from each other and conflict resolution? Yeah, you bet it does. We live in a culture that is unwilling and unable to meaningfully communicate our views to others, often instead choosing to just surround ourselves with like-minded people. We live in a world that is unwilling to consider the views of others that are different than ours as potentially valid or that we have something that we could learn from them. Where, where this is true, it means there is little hope for learning, little hope for changing minds, little hope for building surprising relationships or creating solutions to the challenging problems that we have in the world. Well, that's not good. And so we need better conversations. So much of the research that you've heard and advice that you've had given to you about how to be a good listener says things like, uh, when someone is talking to you and you want them to know that you're listening to them, raise your eyebrows. Oh, not along. Make affirming noise, noises. Mmm, yes. Every now and then, just a little bit of a mm-hmm lets them know that you're actively listening to them. Uh, perhaps from time to time, repeat back to them what you've heard so that they know, oh, he heard what I said. Celeste Headley in her video mentions, uh, this is all terrible advice. You do not have to pretend to be paying attention to people if you will actually pay attention to people. Do not come up with strategies to fake paying attention. Learn how to be a good listener actually listen to people, hear what they're saying, learn from their words because there's a possibility they have something in their words that your ears need to hear. And we're going to see that Jesus demonstrates that over and over again. And Jesus is the greatest teacher of all time who came from the Father as the light to shed light into darkness. And yet he listened to little people and learned from them changed his actions, his minds, his plans, his assumptions based on the things that people said to him. Now, if Jesus can do that, don't we think that we should need to be able to listen to? If there was ever a human who deserved to say, I've got it already figured out, I don't have to listen to anybody else, it was Jesus, and he didn't. 
So who are we to think that we cannot listen to others and learn if he was the kind of person who would? Uh, There's a couple of keys here that I want to highlight. The 10 steps that she gets into are this. Here's the 10 steps. We'll get into Celeste Headley's 10 steps. Uh, Number one, don't multitask. Gary Keller is, uh, if you've ever heard of Keller Williams Real Estate, famous realtor and broker and business leader, uh, has often said, uh, lots of people say that they're good at multitasking, but I say that multitasking is just choosing to fail at multiple things at the same time. Your brain is not wired to multitask. You cannot do anything with excellence if you're trying to do other things with mediocrity at the same time. Choose when you're in a conversation with someone to give them your full attention. Don't tell them that the person who is not present to you who is on your phone is more important to them when they are in your actual presence. Be present to people in the moment and fully present. The second rule is this, don't go on and on about your own point of view. If you want everyone to have access to your opinions without listening to others, write a blog. But quit talking without end about your opinions and calling it a conversation. You know people that do that? You sit down to talk to them and after 10 minutes you realize that you've listened to a lot of their words and you haven't had many of yours heard at all. You don't want to be one of those people. Don't talk endlessly. Don't pontificate. Number three, use open-ended questions. You can ask someone, do you get along with your family? And they can go, yes, or not really. But how much more of an interesting conversation can you have if you ask them, tell me about your family. What was it like growing up at your house? You can't just go, yes, next question. I mean, you can. But that says something too, doesn't it? But ask open-ended questions that invite learning and invite listening. Don't ask someone, what do you do for a living? Ask them, what do you spend most of your time doing during the week? Which, if they're not interested in their job, opens the door for them to tell you what they'd rather be talking about that they spend their time doing during the week. It lets you say, I care about what you care about. Tell me about that so that I can honor your uh, heart and not just learn the data and information about you. Go with the flow. Keep up with the conversation. So many listeners spend too much of their time listening, trying to come up with a really clever response that will make us look good, rather than listening to the actual words that are coming out of the person's mouth who we're talking to. Have you ever been talking to someone, and 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 if you have, it's probably me. I'm the worst about this. You can be talking to me, and you can say something. Laura's laughing because she knows. She's like, this is all of staff meeting. Someone will say something, and I'm like, I've got a clever quip based on a word that they said two minutes ago. I'll just have to wait till they finally take a breath, and then I'll make my joke. And they finally get to their breath, and I make my joke from three minutes ago, and they go, what? And I'm like, good joke. And they're like, did you hear anything I said for three minutes? I was like, no, I was waiting for the pause. I had a good joke. Okay, so don't be like me. Stay with the conversation. There's times that you've got something really great to say, and the conversation moves on, and you need to let your thing go to stay present to where someone else is talking and going and leading. Go with them. Stick with the flow of the conversation. We need to spend less time listening to respond and more time listening to hear. Uh, Number five, if you don't know something, say you don't know something. This is kind of a boy who cried wolf kind of situation, right? If you are the person who always claims to know something, even when you don't, then when you do know something, people will go, yeah, right. 
He says he knows what he's talking about all the time, and he rarely does. You can protect the integrity of the times you do know what you're talking about by confessing when you don't know what you're talking about. Right. It will increase people's respect for your knowledge when you acknowledge your lack of knowledge in some areas. Don't claim to be an expert where you aren't. Uh, don't equate your experience with theirs. We've got a grief seminar group that's been going on for several months here. And you want to talk about a group of people that knows you can't compare one experience to another. These are people that, that have gone through some of the worst moments of life. And they come around each other and can support each other. But they don't get very far by saying, I felt exactly the same way as you all the time. Instead, it's grief seminars are one of the most incredible acts of practicing, listening, and meaningful conversation we have. Because it's a structured way of saying, I'm going to listen to your experience and give honor to that. And then you can listen to mine and give honor to mine. And we can learn from the similarities and, and differences that we're experiencing in ways that are enriching. That's true in so many different areas of life. But it's a skill that we so often fail to learn. Uh, there's entire Saturday Night Live skits that are made up of characters uh, who are doing this one-upsmanship. Oh, yeah, well, I did a thing like that, but better. Oh, yeah, well, I did a thing like that, but better. Don't be a Saturday Night Live skit. Be a good conversationalist, a good listener. Number seven, try not to repeat yourself. Let me say this one again. Try not to repeat yourself. And if you didn't get it the first two times, let me say it one more time because it's so important. Try not to repeat yourself. Because it's either boring or condescending, right? When you repeat yourself, you either show that you don't have a lot to say or you don't think the person you're talking to is a good listener. Uh, but repeating yourself isn't going to prove that you're a good conversationalist. Make your point. Move on. Get to an opportunity to listen to something they want to say instead of repeatedly making them listen to the same thing you want to say. Stay out of the weeds. Don't get so focused in unimportant details that people's eyes start to gloss over and they start looking for interesting, colorful things in the room to look at while you're lost in the minutia of something that is interesting to you, but maybe not so to them. It doesn't mean that you don't know people that can't get into the really interesting, nitty-gritty stuff of things. But in your everyday conversations, don't get stuck in little details when there's important things to be shared and discussed. Number nine is this, listen. Really listen. There's a quote from, from Buddha, who's a religious leader, that shows that this principle isn't just unique to Christianity, and it's really something that's, that's consistent in the human experience. If your mouth is open, you aren't listening. If your mouth is open, you aren't listening. Which is why when your babies cry when I'm preaching, it doesn't bother me. I'm not listening to you guys, you're listening to me. My mouth is open, I'm not receiving anything from you. But when I'm in a conversation with you, if I start preaching and I stop listening, I'm not doing a very good job. Conversations, it's about a give and take that requires listening to people. Calvin Coolidge said, no person ever listened their way out of a job. But we probably all know someone who talked their way out of one. No one ever listened their way out of a job. Uh, number 10 is this, be brief, and I won't say anything else about that one. <laughs> There's a couple of keys here. Here's the first one, be genuinely interested in other people. 
be genuinely interested in other people. Realize that there may be a gift in their words if you're willing to listen. They may have something in their life's experience, in their field of expertise, in their uh, God-given wisdom and, and spiritual insight that they have that you lack. And if you aren't willing to engage them in a way that listens to them, you will forfeit that hidden blessing, that unknown gift. There's true humility, true humility in genuine listening, in meaningful conversation. And our world is often too proud to receive that gift because we're too proud. My opinions are right and yours are wrong. Why should I listen to you? Well, there's no learning that's going to happen there. I have experienced so many things, and I would love to tell you all about them. Well, do you want to hear about my experiences, all the things I've done? No, I would not. I would rather talk about mine. Well, there's an arrogance to that. There's a humility and a gift in listening that opens the door for us to receive a gift from them and their knowledge and experience. Bill Nye says it this way. There's a source of deep wisdom. Bill Nye, the science guy, right? Uh, some of the greatest thinkers in our world have a name and a job description that rhyme. That's how you know they're brilliant. So Bill Nye, the science guy, says this. Everyone you know knows something that you don't. Everyone you know knows something that you don't. And if you actually come to believe that, that everyone has some piece of information or knowledge or experience that, that you could benefit from learning, then it's going to cause you to listen differently and probably speak less. The gift in the conversation becomes the willingness to learn from the others. So there's the 10 rules for having better conversations, and there's certainly a lot of wisdom there. But I want to go into these stories, these texts about Jesus, and, and get into a little bit of how he interacted with people. Now here's the, the zoomed out picture is this, is that in the four Gospels combined, we have more than 40 conversations that Jesus is having with an individual. So in four books, we have 40 conversations where he's talking really one-on-one, -on -one, or, or not that he's alone with them, but he's having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone often in the midst of a crowd who is looking in on a conversation between Jesus and an individual. Nine of those conversations, nine out of 40, were started by Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't you expect it to be more? This is the king of kings, and he's not the one who is always starting conversations. Uh, 25 of the 40 are initiated by the other party. They come up and say, teacher, I have a question. They come up and say, teacher, I have a need. Rabbi, I, I have something that is wrong with me. Can you please help me and address this? They begin the conversation, and Jesus then responds to them. In the rest of the cases, you'll notice that 9 plus 25 does not equal 40. If you're trying to figure out how many are there, it depends on how you figure in a couple of the others. But in the rest of the stories where Jesus is talking to an individual, there's a third party that begins the conversation between Jesus and an individual. For example, one case when a crowd brings a woman caught in adultery and throws her in front of Jesus, and the crowd initiates what becomes a conversation between Jesus and this woman. In another instance, uh, Philip brings uh, Nathaniel and says, Nathaniel, I need you to meet this Jesus. And Jesus then begins to start talking to Nathaniel. Philip starts it, they finish it. But over and over again, Jesus is brought in these conversations by listening first. He's not always the one who begins them. The vast majority of these conversations take place, and, and this, for whatever reason, struck me as really interesting. 
Uh, they take place where people are working, where people are living, where people are on the way to somewhere else, whether it's in the public setting or a workplace or in a home. Over and over again, Jesus is having spiritually significant conversations in what we would consider secular spaces. We are often willing to have religious conversations at church, but not in the world. Jesus is constantly taking his spirituality and his religion everywhere he goes to anyone who wants to talk about it. He doesn't limit his conversations to synagogue and temple. If he's on the road and someone has a question, he's going to talk about it. If he's at someone's banquet table having dinner in their house and, and an opportunity comes up to give a teaching, he's going to teach them. He's willing to have spiritual conversations in all kinds of different settings. In over half of Jesus' conversations, he asked questions. In over half of Jesus' conversations, 40, 40 different conversations with individuals, in over half of them, he asked questions. This is the Son of God, Messiah, Rabbi, Good Shepherd, Chief Priest. This is the one who, if you were ever going to say to someone, hey, we're just going to sit here and listen. You just tell us everything you know, everything that you've experienced. We're just going to take notes. And Jesus over and over again says, tell me what you know. Tell me what you think. What about you? Who do you say I am? Lord. Wouldn't it have been, if you're Peter, don't you reply with, I don't know, you tell us. But Jesus is more interested in the thoughts of Peter and the apostles. Over and over again, Jesus in these conversations asks questions so that he can gain insight from the lives and knowledge and experiences of those who are around him. He places himself in the humble place of learner in the conversation, of the one who is asking the questions so that they might offer him something. And the other thing that I think is really important about realizing how often the other people initiate the conversation is this, is that Jesus left room in his schedule for conversations to happen with surprising people. That's one of our biggest struggles today. When someone shows up unexpected and says, hey, can I talk to you about something? What's the first thing we do? I've got this many minutes. Because we do. We're busy. Our lives are full. And when you're at work and a coworker drops in and says, hey, I need to ask you for your advice on this. And you go, ugh. It's not just a problem that you're not willing to give them your attention. The problem is your schedule's too full for leave for the potential of an important conversation. When you're at your house and your kids come up, and I'm, a, this is, I'm stepping on my own toes here, and your kids come up and say, hey, can we have a little bit of your time? And you go, uh... I've overscheduled and overcommitted myself to not leave time for important conversations with some of the people that should matter the most to me. Your spouse comes up and says, can we have a conversation? And you go, uh, you're already in trouble because you have not worked your schedule in such a way that you have time for the conversations that should be the most important to you. Jesus had the ability to leave flexibility in his schedule so that in the story we'll get to here in a minute, where he looks up into a sycamore tree and sees a wee little man that he says, I'm gonna go to your house for dinner. He didn't go, ooh, uh, Peter, can you make a call and adjust our dinner appointments and our other speaking arrangements and the people that are waiting on the miracles, if you could just put them aside, I've got to go over to Zacchaeus's house. And he knows, he's got room. 
We need margin in our lives for the times that people come to us and need our time that we're not already out before the request comes up. All right, John chapter 2. John chapter 2, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is before he's ever performed any signs in John's gospel that he is who we know that he is today. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonially washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then they called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So many of Jesus' conversations with individuals have to be summaries. They're only one or two lines each, and you get the idea that there's probably more there and that the gospel writers condensed it. Because if we wrote all the things that Jesus did and said, it would fill up all the libraries of the earth. Um, John here tells us this story. And he says, listen, Jesus' mother comes up to him and says, hey, there's a problem that the, the, the wedding party here is going to be embarrassed and shamed and dishonored if something doesn't happen. And I know you can do this. I don't know how Mary knew that, but she does know that Jesus has the power to solve this shortage issue. And Jesus' response is, uh, why are you asking me to do this? I'm not going to do this here. I don't plan on doing this. This is not the time or the hour for me to begin my ministry. And that has to be an important thing. Jesus is in his early to mid-30s. How long has he been thinking about when is the right time to begin my public ministry? How will I announce myself? What will be the time that the Father will call me to begin this? And whatever plan he had, Mary, his mother, comes up to him and says, there's a need here that you can address. And he says, now is not the time. And then she tells the servants, do whatever he says. And Jesus listens to what she has asked him to do. Jesus is aware of the situation where this wedding party is about to be shamed. And Jesus doesn't say, I know the plan to start my ministry and you don't. Mind your own business. Servants, I don't know what she's talking about. Leave me alone. He tells them, do this. They do it and the situation is not only resolved, but extra honor is bestowed on the hosts. Jesus hears his mother considers what she's asking of him, compares it to his own plans that he already has, and then changes his assumption, his mind, his actions, and his plan to meet what she's asking him to do. Isn't that remarkable? remarkable. And that's not the only time we see Jesus do that. Uh, Turn over to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, Jesus entered Jericho. I mentioned this story a minute ago and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. 
So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Just the potential and the promise that Jesus is going to Zacchaeus' house to give him his full presence and attention for an entire meal is enough to bring Zacchaeus to repentance. Just Jesus saying, I'm going to go to your house and give you the honor of my presence, a rabbi going into the defiled house of a tax collector who is serving Rome at the expense of his people for his own financial benefit, I'm going to go to your house. And I'm just going to... I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to recognize you as a son of Abraham. And just with that much of Jesus' attention and presence, Zacchaeus says, look, Lord, anything I've done wrong, I'll pay back in in multiple times over what I've done that is wrong. I'm going to do what is right from here forward. That's what Jesus' presence does. And yet we are so often too busy and too rigid in our lives to be able to give someone the gift of our presence and attention and willingness to listen to them and learn from them and give them the honor of being present with them at a dinner table. When that might be enough to change their eternity. In Matthew 15, this is the last text we'll look at. Matthew 15, uh, see a story... Starting in verse 21, it says, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away. She keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. And he replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. This feels cruel of Jesus, doesn't it? And we need to acknowledge that, that Jesus is actively ignoring this Canaanite woman. She's not one of the children of Abraham, as was mentioned in the Zacchaeus story. She's someone who's from the Canaanite people. She's one of the people that after the conquest was left there to be a thorn in Israel's side. She's an outsider and a foreigner. Jesus, we talked about this several weeks ago, had an incredible ability to focus on his ministry. And the focus of his ministry required him at times to focus on the three and ignore the twelve so that he could really give Peter, James, and John what they needed. 
At times he had to focus on the 12 and ignore the 120 so that he could give the apostles the extra attention and discipleship and training that, that they needed. At times he, he focuses on the larger crowd, the, the people of Israel and the sons and daughters of Abraham that came to him, the Jews who were around him and who had needs. But, but any time you want to protect your most important yes, you have to do it with a hundred no's. <coughs> this story demonstrates that Jesus at times had to say no to immediate and urgent needs to focus on what he knew was more eternally important. And that's what's happening here. We have to learn how to do that too. But in this moment, this woman comes up to him and says, Lord, have mercy on me. My daughter has an incredible need. And he says, listen, I'm here for the people of Israel and my disciples. I, I don't have time for everybody or I wouldn't have time for anybody. He says, I can't give to the dogs what is sacred. And she says, yes, you can. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And this statement of faith recognizes that God is the master and that Jesus is from him. And that if she could just, you know, the woman who touched the hem of Jesus's garment, believing that could heal her. This is like that. She's like, Jesus, I don't even need your full attention. I just need the crumbs. And suddenly Jesus goes from actively ignoring her to being bothered and dismissing her to being in awe of her faith. And he says to her, woman, you have greater faith than any I've seen in all of Israel. And and he says, go, your daughter is going to be healed. What you request is going to be given you. What an incredible moment. Did Jesus do what he planned to all along? No. Why? Because he unwillingly even left room for an unexpected and surprising conversation. And when it happened, he opened his ears and heard what he needed to hear. And when he heard what this woman was actually saying, and he saw her heart and her faith, what his response was, was I need to drop my assumptions and reevaluate this person based on what they're saying. What Jesus learned in that moment was, I know my plan, but her plan is going to require me to adjust what I was going to do because her desire and her faith is worthy of that. Jesus models over and over again a willingness to change his mind, his action, his assumptions, and his plans as a result of listening to others in the midst of meaningful conversations. And we struggle to do that today. We struggle to do that today. Perhaps the most important way that Jesus listens is he listens to his Father. He constantly goes into the wilderness, and he goes into the mountainside, and he goes into the isolated places. And he does so with the desire to listen to God so that God can guide him and direct him and shape his ways in different directions than he intended. So it's no surprise in the hours before Jesus' arrest and eventual crucifixion that Jesus, in a moment of listening to the Father, says, Not my will, but yours be done. He even in his prayers with God said, I will listen for what you will give me in these prayers and I will adjust my life and my death according to your will and not mine. Jesus demonstrates incredibly how important it is to listen and be surprised and find the special gifts in the words and experiences and knowledge and faith of others through little conversations that make a huge difference. 
I believe Jesus was the greatest teacher of all time. And yet with all that he knew and all that he was, he asked questions. He really listened to people. He changed what he was going to do. And the question for you today that I have is, are you willing to listen to other people surprising people by leaving room for them and then hearing what they have to say and leaving open to the possibility that they might know something, anything that you don't, if you're just willing to listen for a little bit, you might find a gift in the conversation. Jesus often did. And those stories remain gifts for us today. I've already violated the 10th rule of good conversations by failing to be brief at all. So I've got to land the plane. Here's the thing. This Jesus that we're talking about is a Jesus that's not just worth following and emulating. He's a brother who desires to love us. He's the one who's gone before us. He's the one who gave his life for us, and he did it because of his and his Father's love for you. If you've never responded to that love and become part of that family, or if you have any other need this morning, please come forward this morning as we stand and sing. He took my burden.